All right, let me invite all of you now to open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, verses 36 through chapter 5, verse 16. As we continue our study together through this wonderful book. And today we come to a very familiar story, mainly because it has to do with... um, One of the major objections as to why people don't go to church is because of hypocrites. I know you've heard that if you've ever talked to people. I can't go to that church because it's full of hypocrites. And uh, that's sort of a double-edged sword, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, at some point during the course of the message. But hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in verse 36 of chapter 4. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. Then, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it? that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered round from the towns and uh, around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we uh, come to this morning to the preaching of the word, we pray that you would enable us to really hear what you are saying through the Spirit to the church. And in order for that to happen, we know that we must lay aside everything 
uh, that is involved in sin and filthiness in our hearts. And we must repent and come to you with an openness and a humility and a teachableness to receive what you are saying today. And we pray that the same Spirit who breathed out this word will breathe in us and open our minds and open our eyes so that we may behold the truth and be drawn to it and to be reproved and rebuked and corrected and instructed in righteousness. And this we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in a very small town in the south, about 7,000 people in Tennessee. And I went to the First Baptist Church in Covington growing up. My dad was a deacon there. And uh, there was no question on Sunday morning where we were going. Every Sunday morning we were at church. Sunday night too. We didn't do the Wednesday night thing uh, because we played too much sports. But we were there all the time. Uh, there was one particular Sunday that stands out in memory. There was a man who came to our church. I would say he was around 80 years old and he was blind and his name was Mr. Webb. And Mr. Webb always came in a little before the service. His wife, he usually held on to her elbow and he, she, he, she would lead him down the aisle to his pew, which is pretty close up front where he sat every single Sunday. And what I remember most about Mr. Webb is he was friendly, but he blinked his eyes all the time which sort of called attention to his blindness. So we're all gathered to worship, and, uh, you know, this is a normal Sunday, and everything's going just exactly like you think it would. Except for this Sunday morning, when the preacher got up to preach, all of a sudden he had this look on his face as if he had seen a ghost. He, he literally turned pale before us. That is the pastor. And he said, the service is dismissed. And you heard a gasp. And then all of a sudden you heard this, thump. Well, Mr. Webb had fallen over on the pew, and his wife was there, and so a couple of the doctors who were there rushed up to the pew. My dad, who was sitting about three seats back, was on top of it in seconds, and uh, they were gathering, and of course, being a kid, you know, we're happy to get out of church early, as selfish as you could be, but we went out the building, and of course, there were some kids sitting up a little closer, and he came out saying, I saw blood coming out of his eyes and his ears and out of his mouth. He's dead. Well, we all stood out in the parking lot, and eventually my dad surfaced and came to the car, and we all got in the car. Of course, we're dying to know, did he die? My dad said, nope, he just fell asleep. He just fell asleep, keeled over, and he said he hit the pew and kind of had a knot on his head, but he said outside of that, he just fell asleep. That was a strange experience because I thought this is like the Bible days. We had a man struck dead in church. Uh, there are people in the Bible who died, men whom God struck dead. You remember in the Old Testament, the story of Nadab and Abihu who offered improper fire upon God's altar and were struck dead. You also remember the story of Uzzah. Who's Uzzah? He's the guy when they were transporting the uh, Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines back to Jerusalem. They put it on a cart, which was the wrong way to carry it. God had prescribed a certain way to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And so they hit a bump in the road, and he reaches out to what? Steady the Ark, falls dead on the spot. And then, of course, today we have um, Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, these stories uh, are sobering, to say the least, quite sobering. 
um, they're sobering accounts, and especially the account of Ananias and Sapphira strikes a, a sort of a sour note in Luke's otherwise upbeat account of the church's earliest days. And we know that uh, events like this generate a lot of suspicion from New Testament scholars, and they think that Peter uh, overreaches or that Luke should have edited this out. But one of the reasons we know this is true history and not propaganda, that is the book of Acts, is because warts and all are shown. And so at the same time, these reactions show how far our thinking is from the New Testament sense of the terrifying holiness of God. The terrifying holiness of God. If the death of Ananias and Sapphira shock us, we ourselves may have fallen into their particular sin. See, the nature of their sin must be grasped in order to understand the severity of their punishment. And uh, the message of this somber incident only makes sense when we understand the depth uh, of their hearts and their sin. And so the heart of the issue here simply is not a refusal to relinquish control over their finances to the apostles, nor was it simple greed. Rather, the issue is one of integrity, one of wholeness. For something to disintegrate, this is how R.C. Sproul helped me understand the word integrity. He said, for something to disintegrate means the whole falls, all the parts fall out. And so everything that consisted in a whole, the parts uh, fall and something disintegrates, it falls apart. Wholeness, on the other hand, and integrity is wholeness. It's all the parts coming together and making something solid and substantial. And so the issue here is integrity in the very presence of God whose truth searches our hearts. Ananias and Sapphira fail to realize that where the Spirit of God is, God the consuming fire is. One thing I want you to note off the top here, as in other places in the Scripture, but this is the clearest indication that the Holy Spirit is regarded as God. Because Peter said, not only did you lie to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God thus speaking of the Holy Spirit. So Luke shows us that uh, Ananias and Sapphira's intent to deceive, even before Peter's indictment, Barnabas had just given a gift to the church. I imagine they uh, had witnessed that. They saw it. They saw all the praise heaped upon Barnabas. He even got this special title, the son of encouragement. And there's some people who cannot handle other people being lifted up and apparently Ananias and Sapphira were those kind of people and so their motive was to gain similar recognition and so what I want to do this morning is look at three issues in the nature of this story and they are first I want us to look at the exemplary, exemplary generosity of Barnabas second the pious pretense of Ananias and Sapphira, and thirdly, the paradoxical reactions of those who were in the church. First, let's look at Barnabas. Luke actually sets up a profound uh, delineated contrast between Barnabas, who sold some property and donated all of the proceeds uh, to the church with Ananias and Sapphira, who did the same, except they held back part of the proceeds and didn't tell anybody. 
On the outside, these two actions looked exactly the same. Yet Barnabas is commended, while Ananias's act and Sapphira is condemned and solemnly judged. What's the difference? Well, at first sight, it would seem that their sin was they kept back part of the money for themselves. But Peter later on says in the text, and it's very clear, that they were under no obligation to either sell the property or donate all of the proceeds to the church. Peter says, didn't it, that is the land, belong to you after you sold it? Was not the money at your disposal? These are rhetorical questions. Thus Peter is saying there were no requirements either to sell the land nor to give all the proceeds. All these actions were voluntary. So what was the problem? Peter says it was because, and he says it twice, you lied, verse 3 and verse 4. In other words, they posed as if they were giving the whole price of the land. They wanted the credit and the honor and the praise of the community of being sacrificial givers, but they did not want to pay the literal cost for it. In short, Ananias and Sapphira's motive for giving was not to honor God, but rather to exalt themselves and honor themselves. And it was not a concern to benefit the poor and the struggling, but rather to benefit themselves. Their sin was hypocrisy, false piety, uh, a, uh, a lack of integrity. And if there's one thing we know from Scripture is that God takes a very dim view of hypocrisy. The Lord Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, basically in that Sermon on the Mount, deals not only with outward actions, but also with inner motivations, the hidden thoughts of the heart. And so in his exposition of the sixth and seventh commandments, he indicated that both murder and adultery can be committed in our hearts unwarranted anger being a kind of heart mur murder and lustful looks a kind of heart adultery. In the matter of giving, which he addresses in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he deals with uh, secret thoughts. And the question is not so much what the hand is doing, that is, passing out cash or money, but what the heart is thinking while the hand is doing it. And there are three possibilities. Either we're seeking the praise of men, or we're preserving our anonymity but are quietly congratulating ourselves, or we are desiring the approval of our divine Father alone. We are doing it in secret. And one thing we know about the Pharisees in the New Testament is they had a ravenous hunger for the praise of men. As a matter of fact, the praise of men meant more to them than the glory of God and His praise. And so they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And you, that's not a gospel-driven heart. That is a flesh-driven heart. So insatiable was their appetite for human commendation that it, it quite spoiled their giving. Jesus even ridicules the way they turned it into a public performance. He says this, Thus when you give alms, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. And so what he, he pictures a pompous Pharisee 
in the temple on his way to put money in the special box or to take a gift to the poor, but in front of him marches trumpeters, blowing a fanfare as they walk and quickly attracting a crowd. They pretended, no doubt, Calvin adds, that it was to call uh, the poor as apologies are never wanting, but it was perfectly obvious that they were hunting for applause and commendation. Now, whether the Pharisees sometimes literally did this or not, um, it was an amusing caricature. In either case, he was rebuking the childish anxiety to be highly esteemed by men. Spurgeon put it this way, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is an interesting word, and I won't elaborate much more than this, but it's, it's an interesting word to know where it came from. It's a compound word, hypocrites, was first in the um, first century an orator and then an actor. In classical Greek, um, the word came to be applied to anybody who treats the whole world as their stage in which they play a part. Uh, they lay aside their true identity and assume a false one. And they no longer... Uh, uh, they are no longer themselves in disguise, but they're impersonating someone else. And so they wear a mask. Now, in, in uh, the productions of theater uh, during this time, usually actors would wear masks of different characters, and you wouldn't have necessarily that many actors. And, so, and women usually weren't in plays, so men would play women obviously, in the, in the theater. And it was an accepted convention. The audience knew that they were watching a drama and they weren't taken in by it. But the trouble with the religious hypocrite, on the other hand, is that they deliberately set out to deceive people. He's like an actor in that he's pretending so that what we're seeing is not the real person but a part, a mask, a disguise, yet he's quite unlike the actor in this respect. He takes some religious practice, which is a real activity, and turns it into what it was never meant to be, namely a piece of make-believe, a theatrical display before an audience. And it was all done for applause. Now it's easy to poke fun at the Jewish Pharisees of the first century. But our Christian Phariseeism is not too amusing as well. We may employ a troop of trumpeters to blow a fanfare each time we give to church or charity. To use a familiar metaphor, we like to blow our own trumpet, or if you were where I came from, was toot your own horn. And that's where these phrases come from is what Jesus is doing it. And he emphasizes they have their reward, but not from God. So Ananias and Sapphira were hypocrites, and that's why their sin was so very sin, uh, sinful. Why did Ananias and Sapphira die? Now, some people think that it was just purely a psychological, physical thing where they were exposed for their lives, and it was too much for them to take, and they killed over and died. Uh, but I don't think that. I think it was definitely a judgment of God, and he might have uh, induced a stroke or a heart attack. I don't know what it was, but it was obviously done by God as judgment. 
Why was the sin seen as so serious? Well, remember what it was. It was hypocrisy. Throughout all the centuries, nothing has hurt the work and the witness of the church more than this. And that's how we know, as Peter will later say, that Satan had filled their heart to lie. Just as the Holy Spirit fills and empowers us with his fruit, so Satan fills and empowers people with his fruit, which is rotten. And that's what happens here. And so judgment came. The judgment was of God. Um, G.K. Chesterton was reputed to have said, the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. And sometimes that's true. Even the most convinced Christians are often cast into doubt by the thought that if the gospel is true, how can so many supposed Christians be dishonest and even cruel? Therefore, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is the most devastating sin to the Christian church because it was so plausible and it looked like something righteous and uh, as a result, it was dangerous. Probably, had this not been found out, they would have been made uh, to rise up in places in leadership in the church and they would have made the church a very proud and smug and legalistic place. The sin was enormously dangerous. And that is why Peter says this was a lie to the Holy Spirit. Obviously, no one consciously believes that you can deceive God. So Ananias was not making a deliberate effort to do so, but Peter is saying that to try to deceive the church is to try to deceive the Holy Spirit, that lying and hypocrisy means the death of the radically loving, supernatural, spiritual community, which was being so powerfully used at this time to spread the gospel to all people. So we've witnessed so far, far both persecution from without, that is the Sanhedrin, trying to destroy this early church movement, but we've also seen deception and lying within as Satan again tries to destroy the church from within through falsehood. Why is lying so awful? And you know, as you look at our culture today, it is hard to get past the lies. Uh, I don't, I don't want to be cynical here, but I'm telling you, I'm having a hard time believing anybody about anything anymore. Uh, there's just a total lack of integrity, uh, culturally speaking, um, and so many agendas and so many things that uh, a friend of mine used to say, you know, truth is fuzzy, kind of around the edges, but in the center, it's uh, powerful and thick. Uh, I'm, I'm becoming less and less of that. I know that uh, the influence of postmodernism has a huge contribution to this, but even uh, back during the phase of Christendom in this nation, at least the influence of truth-telling was at least somewhat there. People have always lied. And what is lying, by the way, anyway? Why is it so bad? Because you're, you're usurping the place of God. You're deciding you get to describe what reality is. You get to tell your truth, and you get to dictate it. And so lying is deceiving people, and you and me playing God because we don't want to face the real reality, so we create another reality, and that is usurping God. It's, it's a, an insult against him. And um, 
certainly a grief. And so trying to use people rather than to serve the people of God is really an effort to use and deceive the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is a stab in the heart of God. Now how can we do the same thing as Ananias and Sapphira? That's a good question to ask. Probably the sin under the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that they were using God to build a righteous reputation rather than serving God out of gratitude for giving them the righteousness of Christ. In other words, they didn't believe the gospel. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They were busy constructing a resume of righteousness that was their own, a self-generated righteousness, to impress others and to receive status rather than submitting to the truth of the gospel and realizing that I have all the righteousness I need and far better than I could ever generate in Christ alone. And so... In other words, they were Christian Pharisees. They were Galatian Judaizers, using religion to look and feel superior to other people. God hates that. They missed the humbling gospel of grace. You know, you can be just as self-centered as a Christian as you can as an unbeliever. You can become, let's say, a Pharisaic Christian or a self-righteous self-generating uh, righteousness, self-justifying righteousness is really no different. You're still at the center. You're still at the core. It's still about you. It's still about your resume, your record, what you're doing. But if we read between the lines, the basic sin of Ananias and Sapphira was to present themselves as something they were not. All our righteousness is as filthy rags before the face of God. They posed as spiritual giants when they were actually struggling with pride and materialism. If they had come in the church and gotten up and confessed their struggle with their sin, even after they had done the scam and the swindle, then uh, they would have been honest with the Holy Spirit, whose mission is in the world is to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. By the way, that's what the Holy Spirit does. How do you know the Holy Spirit's working in your heart? Because he's exposing our hypocrisy. He's exposing our self-righteousness. Uh, very powerful thing. And showing us the righteous we need, righteousness we need is resting in Christ. So in the church today, there's no sin that completely breaks fellowship and ruins the church's witness and destroys your relationship with God except the refusal to repent. And so we fall into the same trap as Ananias and Sapphira uh, when we allow sin to continue in our lives but outside we act as if nothing's going on and we make ourselves accountable to no one and we live and minister in the church as if there are no problems. Let me tell you something about our God. He deals with his preachers. He, he has a very short rope, at least in my experience. The minute I start veering off, uh, he is so gracious and kind to me to shut it down. And he does, I've, I've seen his hand shut it down in my life more than I can tell you. Uh, and so the idea is, so what? They're hypocrites in the church, but the real truth is, do you see that in yourselves? Are you always seeing it as somebody else? 
It's so easy to see it in everybody else, but not see it in our own hearts. And that is why Martin Luther, the first of the 95 theses was, uh, the Christian life is to be one of continual repentance. We're always repenting. Where I should be asking you today, what are you repenting of? Are you repenting of self-righteousness? Are you repenting of hypocrisy? Are you repenting of your sin? We're always, constantly repenting. That is normal Christian living. It is a life of faith and repentance. So how can we avoid this kind of trap? Well, we have to be accountable. We have to realize we're accountable. And uh, it's important to have an openness here, not to uh, have a trash can testimony and everybody look at your garbage, but rather an openness of our struggle. And not to be pretending that life is better than it is. We're all in the struggle. And it teaches us uh, we need our churches to hold its members accountable and to confront them when necessary. Uh, and it teaches us the importance of church discipline. The importance of church discipline. Because God no longer strikes people dead in the church, but he, he does use the leadership of the church to deal with the members of the church and hold them accountable. Hypocrisy in the church undermines the work of the Holy Spirit. But church discipline doesn't mean we confront every Christian about every little sin. Since we're all sinners, that would leave no time for anything else in the church. But rather, we are to confront people who are refusing to repent for spiritual hypocrisy. And Paul tells us to do this in a spirit of meekness and gentleness in Galatians 6. And, and the, uh, when the sin is private... The discipline is private. When the sin extends to a circle, the discipline occurs within the circle. When the sin is scandal and public and unrepented of, then it is the church's responsibility through the leadership to administer discipline. And so God took care of it here. A friend of mine used to say, if God disciplined the same way today, there'd have to be a morgue in every church and a mortician on staff. Uh... That's kind of funny, but not really. <laughs> now, so you get what's going on and why God's response to them was so severe was this is the nascent early developing church. And even if you look back at the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua, that's another place where severe discipline happened in the book of Joshua. Joshua is a book about taking the land. They've crossed the Jordan River. They're going to take the land. It's the beginning of the old covenant movement into the promised land. And here we have the new covenant movement taking the gospel to the nations. And so God deers, deals severely with this sin up front to send a message. Now, how did the people react to it? Well, some were terrified. And it's amazing how the church can be for people. Some people are strangely drawn to the church, and other people are repulsed and repelled from the church. And that is exactly what we see here. On the one hand, a church that is alive, in which the Spirit is working, uh, can be alienating to people. The early church was somewhat intimidating and unnerving to people. It says no one else dared join them. And then in the next verses, 
uh, we know that it didn't mean they did not add new people. They did, but it meant the presence of God in their meetings was both attractive and frightening for some. There is a sense in which the presence of God to those of us who know Him and love Him is a great comfort. On the other hand, it is a terror to people who don't know Him. And so, on the other hand, a vital church is highly respected by unbelievers. It tells us in this text they were highly regarded by the people. Uh, John Stott believes that this paradoxical principle is normal spirituality for churches that are really alive. On the one hand, an awestruck reserve. On the other, great missionary success. The paradoxical situation has often recurred since then. The presence of the living God, whether manifested through preaching or miracles, is both alarming to some and appealing to others. Some are frightened away while others are drawn to the faith. And so a vital church will grow. A vital church, as you look at this text, people are bringing the sick. They're bringing everybody they can find to the apostles because of the power of God and the signs that attended the ministry were so profound that people were coming in droves, coming in droves to be healed and to be ministered to. Um, and so a vital church is a church in which people bring their friends. Now let me tell you something. You may have a friend you want to bring to church to hear the gospel. And believe me, I've done that in my life many times. And at times I've seen them come and they are drawn and they seem to stick and it seems to be effective. And other times they come one time and they never want to come back. Expect that. You're going to have both reactions. And it isn't necessarily anybody's fault, you know, uh, it, it seems to never fail that if somebody brings a friend from the Roman Catholic Church, I tend to say something in the sermon that offends them. I try not to do that, uh, needlessly, but if you just preach the gospel, on the one hand, it is both offensive and, 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 and comforting. Because the gospel says only through Christ who he is, what he's done on your behalf. Can you ever be right with a God who is so holy he strikes down people like Ananias and Sapphira? Sin's serious thing. Our God's a consuming fire. Uh, and so the gospel is offensive because it tells us that the only way we can ever be right with God is somebody else has to do it for us. We have to be saved by this grace. We can't save ourselves. We cannot manufacture the righteousness we need. But anyhow, we see this in the church. And then, of course, next week we'll start to see persecution again. We're going to get on this train in the book of Acts of seeing the church move, and yet there's always a satanic counterattack. Satanic counterattack. Expect it. It's normal for the Christian movement and the development of the early church. So, I don't know if you've thought that much about Ananias and Sapphira, but it is a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for this particular text and how this text sort of sobers all of us up in a way in which we see that uh, we can't play you. You will not be played with. You will not be toyed with. You will not be mocked. For whatever we sow, we're going to reap.
And so, Lord, I pray you would bring that truth to bear upon our hearts today. I pray that you would create in me, above all others, a brokenness and a spirit of repentance for ways in which I have seen myself try to use you to impress other people. And that's awful. It's horrible. It's disgusting. And to use uh, the world as a stage to feed my fat, relentless ego. Lord, break that down in me so that Christ may be praised. Now, Father, thank you for speaking to us today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.